Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Well, prayer is our topic today. You know, you can tell an awful lot about a person. I mean by that that it's a very defining thing. You can tell what a person is really like. You can tell why they are who they are and, and in some cases why they act like they act by looking at who they are in prayer. Who am I in prayer? You know, I can only tell you what I've seen, but I have noticed that people who have an active prayer life find it easier to admit their mistakes, and we do make them, but admitting them is the hard part. But people who are engaged in an active prayer life, what I will call today extraordinary prayer, they find it easier to admit it when they make a mistake. And that's a plus, friend. They find it easier to say, I love you. I've told you before that before we began this church, I began to pray and say, God, before I die, I want to be part of a church where people find it very easy to say I love you to one another. Just give me that. He gave me that. But people that pray find it easier to do that, to say I love you. And people that pray, really pray, that know what extraordinary prayer is like, are less stressed over the things that can't be controlled. I have found over the years that it is not the things that we can control that stresses so much. It's the things we can't. So why stress and prayer helps us deal with that. But we've been looking at Jesus in prayer. We've had holiday and we've had missions guests and other special emphasis. But two or three months ago, we began looking at Jesus, how he prays Jesus in prayer and just a brief recap, we have talked about getting alone in prayer because he did, we should. We've been challenged to pray all night or part of a night. Jesus often pulled away and he would pray the night through. And I've challenged you to do that. And I know some of you have attempted to do that through all or part of a night. We've talked about the advantage of praying with others and the need to pray with others. We've talked about and considered how to show somebody else to pray, and we should be showing somebody else how to pray. We've talked about posture in prayer. Should we sit? Should we stand? How about laying down? Posture. It's all important. Next week, we're going to talk about something that you've probably done since you were a wee small kid, praying over your food. What's that all about? And then we're going to wrap it up in a couple of weeks, talking about some prayer requests that Jesus made. Not many, but significant. But today we're going to talk about extraordinary prayer. Extraordinary prayer. You have heard me use that phrase before, not original with me. Extraordinary prayer. Praying in an extraordinary way. And like with all of the other cases, we get a real-life example in the life of Christ. He paints a word picture for us in Luke 22. Turn there, and we shouldn't 
be surprised that he paints the definitive word picture, a vivid picture of what extraordinary prayer is, and he does it with his life because, after all, he is the very word of God, and so he gives us a picture as the living word. Pick it up at verse 39. It's the last night he will spend on this planet alive. Verse 39, and he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. In other words, this was his typical place for extraordinary prayer. This place in the garden called Olivet, the Mount of Olives. And the disciples, his followers, did what disciples are supposed to do. Followers should do what? Primarily, they should follow Jesus Christ never asked anybody to convert to anything. All he ever asked for, all he ever asked you for was follow me. Go where I go and let's see where this thing takes us. Just follow me. And so his followers are doing what followers should do. And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, his place of extraordinary prayer, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now I know they did not listen to Jesus that night. And the reason is because at the end of this story, in verse 46, he has to repeat what he told them going into the time of prayer. They didn't do it. He tells them, I want you to pray that you do not enter into temptation. And at the very end in verse 46, he tells them, you've been asleep, so just get up. And pray now that you may not enter into temptation. And I know they didn't do it then either. They slept through the one experience. They sleepwalked through the next one. Because they do fall into gross temptation. And they sin and they fall and they abandon him. So I know they didn't listen to what he was saying. But he withdrew from them. These guys who would rather sleep than pray. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw. How far? Can you throw a rock? And he knelt down and he began to pray. And here's where the extraordinary prayer is on display. Saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He's talking about what the next few hours will hold for him. Remove this cup if you're willing, Father, from me. Yet not my will, but... Yours be done. By the way, this is a prayer that will not be answered that way. He will go to the cross. And it's not a case that the Father has one will and Jesus has another will. That's not what's going on here. Their will is always in sync because they're always in sync. And He will say in another place, I and the Father, on everything we're one, we're united. So it's not a case of Jesus has one will. I don't want to do that. And the Father has another will. Oh, yes, you will. But something is tearing inside Jesus. Something in the fabric of who he is as a human being is being pulled and torn. To the point that as he prays, he's not sufficient for the job. And 43, an angel from heaven, a messenger, appeared to him, strengthening him. When angels appear, almost always somebody has to tell the people they appear to, 
Fear not, because they're big and strong. And the messenger of God comes to give him some of that strength. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat, did you ever pray so hard you sweat? Well, even if you did, you didn't pray like this. His sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, extraordinary prayer, he came to the followers, disciples, and found them sleeping from sorrow. Well, so that's why they slept, huh? I've heard of people so depressed that they escape it by sleeping a lot. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray. Here it is. That you may not enter into temptation and they won't, they won't listen that time either. And I know that because they're tempted and they fall. But there it is. There's the living example. I mean, all the way pushed to the edge of what extraordinary prayer is all about. That is the most extraordinary case of extraordinary prayer that I have ever seen. But it's instructive for us, even if we don't pray like that, to that extraordinary degree, it's telling us that when we engage in extraordinary prayer, that it requires space. Look at verse 41. Because it says he had to get away from them about a stone's throw. How far can you throw a good-sized rock? He needed that much space. Because extraordinary prayer that I'm calling you to, it requires you to get some space. Now some people say, I simply can't do this because I don't have time. My schedule won't allow it. I'm involved in things that I can't take hands off of long enough to pray in an extraordinary manner or even to learn how to do that. I simply can't. Some people actually think, they really think that there are things that cannot survive without their constant input and attention. People actually believe that. That's a distortion. That things cannot go on without you? That's a distortion that is bordering on delusion. That is almost a sickness to think that way. When there is a Christ as it says in the Song of Solomon, who is calling us and saying, come away, my beloved, come away with me. Make time for me. Find yourself in me. Jesus Christ, I told you last week, he has come specifically to bring you home. And he wants to bring us home in those times of extraordinary prayer. You see, you were made for prayer. You were made for that kind of intimacy. Prayer is to be your first language and your first longing. Paul will say that I may know him, and you know him in prayer like you know him nowhere else. And prayer starts with space, getting space, getting time alone with him, and space in your schedule alone with him. It starts with a space, a place 
where you can encounter Him in extraordinary prayer. And it starts with a time set aside for that. Prayer. Listen to me. Prayer is nothing more than giving God space to move. That's prayer. When I take time, when I get alone, I'm just giving Him space in the universe where He's free to move. That's prayer. That's extraordinary prayer, and it requires space. It requires space, but it also requires help. There was supernatural help that came to assist Jesus. The prayer was so strong, and and the, the extraordinary prayer was so exhausting that he needed help. He needed supernatural help. Praying in our own strength can be a snare sometimes. To pray my own way in my own strength, that can set up a whole series of problems, really. You know what a circuit jammer is? You know what circuit jammers are? They interrupt the flow of power. A circuit jammer. When I sit down with a couple wanting to be married, or a couple that's having trouble, or or even family that's having interpersonal issues, I talk to them about circuit jammers. There are probably some circuit jammers that are present in your life, in your way your communication goes about, that's jamming the circuit, and things are not satisfactory. Because of those circuit jammers. And there can be circuit jammers in prayer. I know in marriage there can be circuit jammers. If you're not honest with one another, communication is hard. Body language can be a circuit jammer. Certain phrases, I told you a thousand times, can be a circuit jammer. How can you be so dumb? Can be a circuit jammer. There can be circuit jammers between husband and wife, parents and children. But there are circuit jammers in prayer, and dishonesty is one of those. Be honest before God. Don't sugarcoat. Don't try and fool Him. Don't try and put your best foot forward, because you don't have a best foot. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. That's when we're at our best. We're dirty. (laughs) So be honest with God. Otherwise, don't bother to pray. The lack of balance, that can be another circuit jammer where all we do is ask, 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 or all we do is ask for money, or all we do is ask for health, or all we do is ask for the lost. Those are all valid things. But if that's all we do, the prayer is unbalanced. If all we do is worship, that is unbalanced too. And an unbalanced prayer can be a circuit jammer. Narrow ideas about who the Father, Son, and Spirit are who God is within himself. If we get the idea that God is angry, if we get the idea that he's Santa Claus, those are all circuit jammers, you see. Unconfessed sin. We've done it. We're guilty. We're dead to rights wrong. And we know it. And he knows it. And we won't talk about it. Unconfessed sin. Unresolved wounds. Whether you caused the wound or received the wound can be a circuit jammer. Praying in your own strength can jam the circuits too. 
And that's why when we enter into extraordinary prayer, now I'm not talking about ordinary everyday prayer. I'm not talking about ineffective prayer. We don't need anybody's help for that. We can make a lousy work of that all by ourselves. But if we want to pray in an extraordinary way, which is the only kind of prayer we should be engaged in, we need help. We need supernatural help, just like he need that angel to come and strengthen him. You see what Jesus experiences here? He's experiencing what you and I can experience because it is the work of the Holy Spirit of God, that part of the relationship that is God. It is part of the work of the Holy Spirit of God to enter your life, to come alongside and help you. He's called the parakletos, one called alongside to help. In that time of prayer, you are not to pray on your own. The Holy Spirit comes and helps to pray through you. He's the one called alongside to help. Jesus receives supernatural help. You receive supernatural help. When you pray, you are not praying by yourself. The Holy Spirit is praying with you and through you and for you. But notice Verses 43 and 44, now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, and being in agony, he was praying very fervently to the point that he began to sweat, to the point that he began to sweat blood. What's happening here? He's strengthened to do what? He supernaturally strengthened to do what specifically? to get out of the hour of extraordinary prayer, to make the heaviness go away. He strengthened to pray more. He strengthened to pray more. And the way he's praying means more agony in prayer. It means it will be hard still, but he's got the strength to pray the extraordinary prayer now. Now, I don't mean to scare you. In fact, it is so scary that I had some second thoughts late last night and thought, maybe you should pull that message because nobody's going to want to do this. But I don't mean to scare you. All extraordinary prayer doesn't end with sweating blood, but I'm only being realistic when I tell you that it requires help. It can be hard to pray like this. And at this point, many push back from the table and excuse themselves, thank you very much. I'll not be doing that. But for those who are interested, it requires help. It requires supernatural help because it can be hard. Again, verse 44, so hard in his case. That's the illustration. He's the extreme end of it. But extraordinary prayer can be hard. He's in grief here. He's in grief because he's thinking about us. He's thinking about how desperate our situation is. He's thinking about how we have pushed ourselves away from God and that's why we are in the mess we are in and we are doomed and we are in darkness and we are every bit lost. And that grieves him. And it must grieve him to know that there is a percentage of people that though presented with the truth will say no thank you and will take a pass. And he's grieved that night as he prays. That is the agony here. 
He's grieved. And I, I, I know of people who have died from raw, unfiltered grief. But it took some time. It took some months. I'm thinking of one person, it took three years. But she died from grief that she couldn't offload. But it was different for Christ. It didn't take that much time. The garden struggle was so overwhelming and such great trauma to his body and his spirit. The grief was staggering. And the struggle was beyond exhausting. Matthew, when he recounts this story, he has him telling those that he hoped would share some of this and also be praying with him. He has Matthew telling them, My soul is deeply grieved. Some of your Bibles say exceeding sorrowful to the point of death. And that wasn't an exaggeration on his part. He was dying from the grief. Without it, the angelic strength, he would not have made it to the cross. He would have died there in the garden. It was too hard. Now there were two things, when you think about it, that made it so crushing, so deadly, so potentially mortal for him. And one of them was that Satan was mounting a massive full frontal assault to keep him from the cross. You see, Satan tried to kill him in the garden. But God the Father sent the angelic strength that kept him from dying there on the spot as he prayed, as he shouldered all of this grief. Satan was mounting a massive assault to keep him from doing his work on the cross. If he could kill him in the garden and not let him get to the cross, then we would still be in our sins. They would not get nailed there. He would not absorb them in himself, in his person. And we would never be free. So he's doing all he can. The enemy is the enemy of your soul to keep him from the cross. But there's a second thing that makes it so crushing. And that's that he is so pure. He's never been guilty of deed or thought or word, no action. And he's about to become, listen, sin for us. He's about to absorb it all into himself. And if he can absorb it all into himself, every filthy thing that I've ever done, then it won't be on me anymore. And I'll be clean. He's about to do that. He's about to become the scapegoat of the human race. He was taking on our worst distortions of what it is to be a human being. But this, listen, absorbing it, setting us free, that's how he will birth righteousness right standing before God. That's how he will make us right again. See, our praying 
will never be this hard. But sometimes extraordinary prayer, and why pray anything else, will be hard enough. I'm just telling you, it will be hard. And it will be fervent. It says he is praying fervently. It makes me think of young Hannah, this young bride who's been awarded the social stigma that comes in that culture with not having a child, though she's married. I don't know why societies do this, but it's no fault of her own, and maybe it's not her fault at all. Maybe it's her husband's physical fault that she cannot get pregnant and conceive and have a child But society has singled her out and said, oh, you must be cursed. And she takes that on herself. And she feels the shame of that as she stumbles into the makeshift temple called the tabernacle at Shiloh. And she throws herself on the altar. And she weeps and she prays so fervently and in such an extraordinary manner that she is voicing words that cannot be heard, and her mouth is engaged, and her face carries all of the pain and all of the urgency of her extraordinary prayer for a child. God, give me a child and take this burden off my life. Let people nearby say she's out of her mind drunk. More stigma. When you pray fervently, when extraordinary prayer becomes the way you pray, when you make space for this difficult kind of praying, it can be that you will be unfairly judged. And you will have to give up your right to explain yourself if part of your time is spent in extraordinary prayer. And it's costly. That costliness of extraordinary prayer, it could not be more vividly painted for us. As as you see the gobs of coagulated blood clotting and splatting on the hard-packed ground where he kneels. Now let me tell you something. Bland prayers, pale prayers, they cost nothing. Safe prayers, sweet prayers, proper prayers, orderly prayers cost nothing. Unusual prayer, prayer that cries out in pain and that cries out of mystery I don't understand. And prayer that seeks to know the mind of God and to get in sync with Him. That prayer that is, that is risky, that pushes the envelope. Prayer that weeps over the lost, and souls that are broken, and lives that are devastated. Prayer that is effective in changing things, and changing people, and changing cultures, and changing our city. That kind of prayer, prayer that brings a fresh move of God's Spirit that cleanses and heals and fixes, that will cost you plenty. Extraordinary prayer costs. And so I've got to ask, 
And this is why I almost tabled this message. Are you up for it? Will you try it? I know you can do it. I know you can do it. And it doesn't require vast biblical knowledge. It doesn't require a perfect life with zero warts. It doesn't require cleverness or a high IQ or standing in the church as some great leader. It doesn't require a good past without any regrets. You may have plenty. In fact, extraordinary prayer is in no way, shape, or form associated with prominence of any kind. Those who are best at extraordinary prayer almost always fly under the radar and don't talk about it. You never know who they are. In that sense, they're kind of like the men from my father's generation who came back from combat and never talked about it. People of extraordinary prayer, not prominent in most cases. And their work is largely unknown. Yesterday I performed a part of a funeral service for a young lady who for a short time came to our church deaf, born deaf. She passed away. We had the service and I talked to her dad that I've known him for years. He now lives out of state. But I got him alone and I said, Mike, I want you to understand something. That what you did with your daughter, deaf, and other health issues as well. I said, I want you to understand that that was extremely admirable. I admire you. And I want you to know that at least one other person was watching. And I saw. And I know that as God watched, he's pleased. And it's the same way with the person of extraordinary prayer. Nobody else knows, but God knows. He's watching and he's pleased. And so the work of the person of extraordinary prayer, this is all part of my question, will you try it? Their work is unknown. I don't have to tell you that the world is a badly broken place, right? And that the brokenness is real. Homelessness is real. There is real rage in this world that is out of control. There is real evil in this world. There is real resentment that can erupt into violence at any given moment, and it's real. There is real violence against women. There is real violence of the worst kind against children. 
and it's not a figment of your imagination. There is real fear. There is real jealousy. In this broken world, there is real racism and hate. And there are unsolvable problems. And that all tells you, that all tells you that it really is a broken place. And that evil is real. But people of extraordinary prayer are operating every day in this evil world. And what that means is that they operate every time they pray behind enemy lines. We're in enemy hostile territory in this world when we pray. Every time. We're behind the enemy lines with each prayer. And with each prayer, we are sabotaging the ugliness You want to have not a predictable, average prayer life, but an extraordinary prayer life? I know that some of you do. But if you're really not up to it, we're going to close this thing in a moment. Feel free to leave. But for the rest of you, I want you to give me just four or five more minutes. Because some of you are skeptical. I'm not bothered by that. I want you to think about the temptation of Christ. When he entered into temptation, unlike his followers, he was ready. Because he'd absorbed the word. But one of his temptations, you remember it? In a moment of time, Satan peels back the canvas and he shows him all of the kingdoms and empires and great nations of the world. Past, present, future. There's the Sumerian Empire and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Ming Dynasty. And there's the Central American Empires. There's Western Europe and there's the great empire of the United States. There's Rome and Greece and Egypt, all of it. All of it. And the enemy waves his arm and says to Jesus, You can have it all if you'll bow down and worship me. There's the rub. But he says, It's all mine, given to me by God. How odd. And I can give it to whomever I wish. And you don't have to be a trained historian. To look backward in time and realize that people have petitioned and received from Satan. Some of the worst people that ever walked the planet have received permission to operate some of those kingdoms. But the point is, the enemy, without Jesus quibbling, accepting him at his word when he says they're all mine. This world is mine, and I can do with it what I wish. That tells you, if you're interested in extraordinary prayer, that every prayer you pray, you will be behind enemy lines. You see? Satan will let you read your Bible. 
He will let you sing. He will let you come to church if you have a mind to do it. He will let you give. He will let you serve and beat yourself silly in your service. And it doesn't bother him all that much. The fact that churches are full are testimonies to that. But when you pray, when you really pray, when you adopt a lifestyle of extraordinary prayer, he trembles because he knows his days are numbered when you pray. So I want you to know that if you're saying, I want to try extraordinary prayer, that it's not going to be easy to find the time to do it. That every obstacle will come up. It will not be easy to find the time, especially to start. But if you quit at this point, then the enemy doesn't need to do anything else. You can go on your merry way, and he's not threatened. And so I'm telling you, that in a life of extraordinary prayer, doing it, starting it, is the most difficult of steps. Just a warning. And if you stop at this point and you don't make time to do it, then the unsolvables will remain in place. But if you pray, Listen to me. If you pray, it will be exactly like Paul who knew what extraordinary prayer was all about. It will be exactly what he described. When he says, when you pray like that, that the very strongholds, the garrisons, the fortresses, the castles, the secure places of evil, of ugliness, of pain will be pulled down around you when you pray. The strongholds will come down. But you've got to pray. I want you to stand with me. I keep something in my Bible that I wrote down years ago. And I look at it all the time. Not Scripture. Can I tell you something privately? I guess it won't be so private because they're recording it. <laughs> I love the Word of God. Nothing like it. Not even close. But there are days when I read the Word and it doesn't get through. I don't know why. But there are days when it doesn't do it for me. Thank God I don't go much more than a day. But that's when I pull this out. It's part of a letter, a goodbye letter, of a man 19 centuries ago, the third century, the 200s, 
It's the last words he wrote in a letter to a friend who said, if you take this certain course of action, I will write you off. You will be dead to me and to your family. And so he had decided to take the course of action, and he's writing a letter to say goodbye. And why? Because he'll have to move away anyway. So it's his last words to his dear friend. He says, it's a bad world, an incredibly bad world, but I have discovered in the middle of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they don't really care. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world through prayer. These people are the Christians, and I am one of them. We overcome the world. We overcome this dirty world through prayer. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.